Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We're out there to take country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He holed me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to the second instalment of our special veteran panel episodes. For this episode, Angus Horden spoke with some previous guests on this podcast about the Vietnam War. I'm Angus Horden, and today I'm joined by four of our guests from season one. In the studio with us today is Sandy McGregor. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Angus. I'm looking forward to our chat. Also is David Buckwalter. G'day, Angus. Nice to be here again. And David Leaf. G'day, Angus. Thanks very much for being here. And finally, our pilot, Ron Aiken. G'day, Angus. Good to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. Many of our listeners will have heard your stories before, and to those who have discovered us more recently, we encourage you all to go back and listen to these great stories from before. So, to start, before we go back through the war, you all had prior military experience in your life. Specifically talking just on cadets right now, how useful was cadet service for you, David? Well... I think, Angus, it set the scene for me in that I sort of got to know what the army was like. I suppose you get the flavour of it. Even though I was in the brass band, you did everything, all the marching, doing things together. And I know that when I was offered a, a scholarship while I was at university to go into the forces, the decision wasn't hard to decide I wanted to go into the army, looking for a bit of a... um, a little bit of more adventure on the ground than uh, what what I might might have had up until then. And I do remember, I do remember when I was interviewed for the scholarship and at Victoria Barracks, and all these generals and brigadiers were all lined up there. We had such fun talking about the camp days at Singleton and the food, the uh, laced um, hot chocolate before we went to bed. I think that was always a, a very much a strong point for uh, me getting the scholarship over others. So, David, did the hot chocolate do it for you? <laughs> I actually can't remember the hot chocolate. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> you must have missed out on that batch. Yeah. I, well, I, yeah. I did spend a couple of minutes in the in the brass band also, but uh, I was a drummer and I couldn't coordinate my sticks too well, so I couldn't do the roll, so I didn't last there long. But um, I think the cadets was sort of something that uh, gave you a bit of an understanding of what uh, army life might be like. I don't think it really made a lot of difference if you compared somebody who did do cadets and somebody who didn't do cadets. But, you know, I, I remember the, the camping and I remember we were camping at Singleton and it was really cold and we were sleeping within literally inches of the fire that we had going because it was so bloody miserable. And I remember things like firing a, 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 a Vickers machine gun, which was quite a novelty at the time, but did give you some grounding into some idea what it was all going to be like. Ron, do you remember the cold at Singleton? 
I don't recall the cold too much, but I do recall the very uncomfortable palliasses we had to sleep on. We had to stuff straw into these big Hessian bags. And of course, uh, after a couple of camps, you realised that you needed to put a hell of a lot of straw in the bags for it to be comfortable for, for the length of time of the camp. But uh, uh, I do recall that uh, cadets was uh, it's very useful in the weapons training we received, even the schoolboys, because we got pretty thorough weapons training. I think later cadets probably suffered a bit from that, from it, for that, as I recall. But it was very useful as a cadet in the Air Force to have been trained in uh, drill and, uh, and, and weapons, because of course the same thing happened again in the Air Force cadet scheme. So it put me a bit ahead of chaps who hadn't had any cadet training at all. Uh, some of them found a great deal of difficulty in marching and that sort of thing. But for me, having started at such a young age, it was a very natural thing and very easy to do. So it took a bit of the stress off that aspect of, of Air Force training. And Sandy, how were cadets down south in Tasmania at this I time? I loved cadets. I loved it. We did a lot of work on weapons training as well, Ron. It was, uh, I can particularly remember the Bren, how we used to have competitions of stripping it and uh, putting it back together again and then doing it blindfolded. I always remember the shooting. We did so much shooting. It was absolutely fantastic. I love cadets. Now, Ron and Sandy, besides the cadets, you both had prior military experience before going to Vietnam with other programs that you're in. Yes, I went to uh, Duntroon Military College, and so I had four years there. Then I went to Sydney University, did two years civil engineering, then School of Military Engineering for six months, then New Guinea with 17 Construction Squadron for 12 months. Then I was back in Australia, and then in 1965 we formed a three-field troop, which was the first troop of engineers that went to Vietnam. And Ron, how about your prior experience? Well, when I left school, I uh, started off doing mechanical engineering at uni. And after a year and a half of that, decided that uh, I would join the Air Force. I saw an ad in the paper saying, join the Air Force. So I did. The prior cadet experience had no bearing on my joining the Air Force. Uh, it was just simply that I wanted to fly. And then, of course, prior to Vietnam, I had uh, other squadron experience in the Air Force. I first of all, went to a, to a 38 squadron and then... 36 squadron and then 34 squadron, the VIP squadron, and then I went to uh, two squadron or to OCU, one OCU, and then up to two squadron. Well, certainly for you both, having such prior and extensive experience would have helped you a lot, I'm sure. It certainly did. I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, having had all that previous squadron experience, it, uh, it just made me more proficient for, uh, for what I had to do. You mean uh, helped us a lot in uh, Vietnam, Angus? Is that what you mean? Yeah, uh, certainly being accustomed for service when you're deployed? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, uh, I needed this experience to be able to command the troop anyway. It was really good experience what I did in the Army for going over to uh, Vietnam. We were very well trained as sappers, no doubt about that. Of our group here today, you were the first into Vietnam, Sandy, in 1965. Yeah. Then David Buckwalter, David Leaf, and then Ron, you were last out in 1970. So the four of you really represent the whole extremity of the war. Let's start by talking about the engineers, Sandy, as you were the first tunnel rat. And by the end of your tour, the manner in which engineers were now being deployed with platoons on the front line and how company policy was changing the guys in the field. So can you give us a bit of an insight into your role in the engineers in Vietnam? That particular area was quite 
challenging to do. We started off with all our soldiers at battalion headquarters and then after battalion headquarters we broke them down into demolition teams of four and six with company headquarters. Then we broke them down into what we call splinter teams so that we had splinter teams with each of the platoons within the company and the corporal on um, company headquarters who was advising the major, uh, the company commander. And that's where we finished up in Vietnam. That was the particular, it was like an SOP, a standing operating procedure. That's what happened throughout uh, Vietnam, not in every case, but in most cases. And in fact, this is what has gone on today in places like Afghanistan and today with, uh, with uh, organisations such as the SAS and with the commandos. In fact, we've got the Special Operations Engineer Regiment training in this same way with SAS and with commandos. So David Buckwalter, what was your experience with the engineers? Most uh, company operations or battalion operations, we had a field engineer attached to company headquarters. Wherever we interacted with campsites that were Vietnamese campsites, we found uh, either stuff had to be demolished or something had to be checked out for uh, booby traps or if there were tunnels, check those out. So that was our, let's say, daily interaction. Other than that, our main interaction was uh, in the infamous minefield that was uh, constructed by our engineers and uh, I was with the company that was uh, first there to secure the engineers while they laid the mines we did patrols around them they were an integral part of a uh, battalion operation you could see that the uh, best way of working was to having the sapper basically with the platoon that was doing the clearing so that when this forward scout came across the booby trap then the first thing to do was to call for the sapper to be able to clear the booby trap. And this is what happened on many, many occasions. This is what developed, this was the most effective, and this is uh, what's become SOP in Australia now. Now, Ron, you've got a bit of a different perspective being 10,000 feet up in the air with regard to all these engineers and tunnels and booby traps. Well, I mean, we weren't at that height all the time. That was just on operations. We were living on the ground a lot of the time. I was at Phan Rang Air Base, uh, and of course that air base had to be defended from, from intrusion by the uh, NVA and, uh, and Viet Cong. We had uh, Viet Cong operatives working on the base. In fact, they caught some, uh, trying to bring satchel charges onto the base one night and discovered that uh, one of them was, the, uh, was one of the base barbers and the other one was working in one of the messes uh, as, a, as an ordinary pant, you know. So there was definite risk and requirement for uh, engineers and sappers and others to be keeping an eye on the, on the booby traps that would be set in, in the vicinity. Most of the time that was done by the uh, air defence guards. We had some ADGs as part of our squadron attached to the squadron and the Americans had some and of course the, the whole base was generally secured by this South Korean armed uh, force unit that uh, was living pretty much with us. Ron, you, you mentioned something very significant, which was one of the many difficult characteristics of your war, the Vietnam War, which was you are working with local people and you didn't know whether they're friendly or foe. I'll give you an example of how awkward that could be. Uh, at the time I was there, one of our chaplains, uh, a Catholic uh, father, Mick McCormick, was, was uh, doing great work 
setting up uh, an orphanage in the in the area of, of the base and uh, amongst the local community and doing a great deal of community support work. And he used to encourage many of us to go and give him a hand when we had a bit of spare time. And uh, one of the, we never left the base in other than pairs. So we got a lift down to the main gate with uh, myself and I can't recall the, the chap I was with at the time, but there were two, two American uh, F-100 squadron guys from, from our particular wing also going to the, to the gate and we used the same vehicle to get there. We went through the, the gate uh, guard situation. The pair of us went off in our direction to get a lift to the, to the orphanage and the other pair went a short distance away and uh, within a fairly short distance from us, a child ran up to one of those, one of those pilots and gave, uh, gave him a package which he opened and it uh, blew his hand off. So yeah, there were certain hazards around the place mm -hmm. that, that we had to be careful of too. We, although we were on a, a well-guarded base, we weren't insulated from it. We used to get rocket attacks. They used to run these, these rockets uh, from the surrounding countryside. They'd set them up at night time and they'd set them up with that Anzac type fuse, you know, the water drip fuse, that sort of thing. And when, when the can emptied, the, the rocket uh, mechanism was tripped and uh, these things just landed on the base somewhere randomly. So, and of course they did a great deal of damage where they landed, but sometimes they landed in some open space, sometimes they'd hit a building, sometimes people were injured or killed. So it was a little bit of a lottery. And they used to mount mortar attacks from, from outside the perimeter if they could get close enough and mortars would lob in. The mortars seldom reached the airfield, which was pretty much centrally placed in the base. The mortars tended to land in the you know, sometimes living quarters and the more peripheral buildings, which is where the less uh, vulnerable, perhaps, you know, that we didn't want aircraft damage and we didn't want munition stores and maintenance areas damaged, so that the living areas were, were areas that were more susceptible to being hit by these. Ron's brought up a, a good point, Angus. Um, he's talking about an American base or a Korean base or something like that. When I was on 173rd Airborne Brigade, which was at Binh Hoa Air Base, there were also Vietnamese allowed on the base. Uh, workers, water washers, all that sort of thing. But we did not allow them into the three-field troop area nor into any Australian area. Now, I served a month at um, the Coochie Air Base and the Coochie Base, uh, 25th Division, they allowed uh, Vietnamese onto the site. Now, when I left uh, the Nui Dat, base, when I left there, there were no Vietnamese there, no. and you guys could tell us whether, whether I, there were I, later. I could say that I never saw a Vietnamese no. in, in the time when I was at Nui Dat, and yeah. uh, um, I can't vouch for Task Force headquarters if there were any workers down there, but I, I doubt it very much. Uh, we were totally and solely looking after ourselves. We didn't interact with the US forces virtually uh, and or the South Vietnamese. Almost nil. We had interpreters, but they were, I suppose, uh, had been... Cleared. <laughs> cleared. Cleared, yes. Yes, yes they'd been security cleared, we hoped. <laughs> David Leaf, you'd concur? Oh, yes, definitely. No, there was none on at Nui Dat, but when we went down to Vung Tau, there were on the base in Vung Tau. They so, were everywhere there. So what we're seeing, Nui Dat was a, an Australian base. Nui Dat was the, basically the fighting forces base mm under a, a, an old rubber plantation and they were all tents basically except for some nice art buildings but in uh, your day 
in my day. Um, <laughs> sorry, Ed, so rough. And um, then in Bang Tao, of course, it was all basically all eyesight buildings, and, and that was basically the support place where uh, all the, uh, um, I forget what's it called, the... Um, AATTV. AATTV, I think that's right. Yes. Training team. The place basically where the, the field hospital was and where all the administration took place. Logistic place. We're seeing a bit of a theme here, which we also see in the field, that the way the Americans go into the field and wage war is different to the way we do it, and the way they maintain base integrity and security is quite different to the way we do it. Absolutely. And as a result, and we can you know, simplify this with the comparison to your tunnels, our system of doing things and certainly of cutting down the interaction with the local people and maintaining our, our own security reduce casualties. Let's talk about base life. We've already just touched on that. David, I know even in your position, often you would get back to base and you were far from safe. You know, as Ron was saying, you were always within mortar range. The enemy were always probing your defences. Can you share some of those experiences? As a rule, you, you did feel fairly safe at Nui Dat. Yes, rockets did come in, but to the extent that no one, they were sort of, as you say, Ron, you said they're off the mark pretty well. And most people say, oh, quick, go to your trenches. There were trenches all around the place that had a cover halfway over the top with bags and then you could jump down either end into the trenches. Well, no one really got into them because everyone knew they were full of snakes. So you, you were safer sitting on top at the top of the trench and obeying orders rather than jumping into the trenches, you know. But as a rule, though, you know, certainly there were always there was a guard all the way around the place. So you did feel pretty safe for all that. It was home. It was home. Yeah, it was home. Yes, right. It's it yeah. it when you drove out the gate that you were worried. That <laughs> rang the Did... rockets would be set through the night so that their little fuse, their primitive fuses would normally have them uh, land on the base around dawn. Uh, there was never any point in getting out of your bed and jump, if you were there and jumping into a trench or, so, or whatever we had at the time because that was it. The rockets had landed, they had exploded, and that was it for the day. So as long as they didn't hit you... Everything was fine for at least another 24 hours, you know. There was the reason for this, Angus. What happened in our patrolling, active patrolling around Nuidat was always 4,000 metres out. The reason it was 4,000 metres out was because mortar base plate positions can fire about 4,000 metres. So we had active patrolling all around the base up to at least... 4,000 metres, so that anybody that came within that area would just be banging off a rocket launcher or something like that, or maybe one mortar round and then shooting through, they were not able to really do any real damage at the base. Until, of course, uh, Long Tan. Long Tan was a little bit different. Uh, when we were mortared uh, on the 17th of August, that landed right in the uh, engineer area. But that was a prelude to an attack. Generally speaking, the base was left untouched. When we were in base camp, we would be doing platoon or section size standing patrol. So we'd go out there and park for the night, set up an ambush, and hope it didn't get triggered. So uh, as uh, we were just saying here then, you know, that, that covered the amount of uh, ability for the Vietnamese to actually mortar us. I, uh, apart from the um, second night I was in Vietnam, which was the 17th of August, um, when I got, I was on the receiving end of those incoming mortars. A couple of guys got wounded in the reinforcement wing where I was at the time, 
and that was the, that was the only time I have any recollection of incoming uh, mortars or rockets, basically. Yeah. David, can we talk a little bit more about what it was like to go on a patrol? So you've said, be it at section strength or platoon strength, you know, 10 to 30 men, etc. Can you describe what it's like to camp out overnight or covered up in your cam gear, having set your claymores and really been unable to get much sleep and been eaten by mosquitoes? Camping out on patrol initially was not much different to being in camp. When we first arrived in Vietnam, we were in hootsies. We weren't in tents. We didn't have any, any tents at all. And so uh, the best we did, the only different thing was from out of patrols. We had folding stretchers and, uh, at Nui Dat and uh, we didn't have them when we were carting them out in the bush. So uh, the tents came later, basically, and uh, I think it was a good, a good month or something like that before we started getting the big tents in and uh, setting them up. And then that was a, quite a job because it, we had to go and scrounge, make floorboarding, duckboarding and that which we used to steal from various places and some goods that maybe arrived in somewhere and they were packed in packing cases and we'd bust up the packing cases and use them for, to make floorboards or furniture or, or stuff like that basically. Going out and patrol, well most most of the time we never used a tent when we were out, and out, out on patrol, we just sleep on the ground. Too hard to, to get set up and um, the risk of being seen. And so there was you know, a patrol sequence where we had a certain number of troops on guard duty and the others had kept and uh, yeah, just rotate the watch basically. Yeah. Can I ask what you did in the wet season then? Did you, did you just you lay at rain at night? You just sat and just got, got soaked? Yeah, you got wet. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Let's keep going with that. What, what, when you got wet, David, and at night time, and you tried to get a bit of sleep, what did you do then? Lay down your wet clothes. That's it. That's it. There was no choices. <laughs> there were no choices I can remember. Where, like, in, during the, particularly during the wet season, even when we were in Nui Dat, uh, at at the um, beginning we had no showers, and I can remember it was raining one afternoon. I thought there was an opportunity to get a shower, so you'd strip off completely and you'd stand outside the tent and it'd be bucketing with rain and you'd get your soap and you'd, away you'd go and uh, you'd soap up and clean it and then you'd uh, then you'd get back into the tent and you'd put a chair just on the uh, on the edge of the blackboard in the tent and you'd stick your feet outside the tent and let your feet get washed <laughs> get the mud off the off your feet and then you'd finish off that that was the process you know one of the things that we did when we were wet, we put our raincoat on at night because the raincoat on at night used to keep all the warmth in and and uh, that was one way of keeping warm. Like a so that's, that's what I was wondering whether you did that. We didn't carry raincoats. You didn't take a raincoat. We had enough crap to carry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I, I was carrying it. I was a radio operator early days and... That was 25 kilos and then a few batteries. Uh, so that was uh, that plus, you know, a couple of hundred rounds of ammunition, four days rations. Uh, there weren't any room for extras. <laughs> so, so, David, just on that, you'd go on patrol and often these patrols could be how long? Oh, well, platoon-sized patrols generally weren't that long, maybe four days, you know, five days, something something like that, but, you know, stretch it to a week. That'd be the maximum, basically, mostly less than that. The company-sized patrols would be longer, you know, that could be a week and a half, or, you know. Can you describe how an Australian platoon patrol could differ to an American patrol of the same size? 
I was fortunate enough not to go on an American patrol. <laughs> That's why I must be here talking about it. And um, what I know of, of, uh, of American patrolling was rumours only sort of thing. So I never, as I said, we never, we had virtually no interaction with the Americans. I know that we did patrols along the, the main highway in when the big red one the division came in and we we had to guard them but we just we were doing patrols along the road and they were coming past in millions of trucks so we were yeah we were i think that was a you know a very a great decision by the australian government to give us an area to look after and leave us alone sort of thing was a, a policy that saved a lot of lives but ron in your case it was very beneficial working with the americans from an air force point of view well, it was. I mean, their logistics system is vast, and of course, uh, we tapped into that. We didn't receive uh, gratis supplies from the Americans, but we took advantage of their system to buy material from them uh, as, as necessary. We started off dropping Australian bombs, which we had a pretty large stockpile of in, uh, in Australia, and we moved those up to Vietnam. And we started to run out of those, and uh, we cleaned up all the 500 pounders and we were then onto the 1,000 pound bombs and they were running in pretty short supply. They were British, British designed bombs. And so we then uh, had a look to see what the Americans had and we found they had the Mark 117, a 750 pound bomb, which was a slick, a fairly streamlined bomb. And uh, the, the Americans weren't dropping a lot of those. They were mainly dropped, the, the F-100s used to drop 500 pound bombs. Mark 82s, as I remember, and uh, we didn't bother with those. They, uh, the Canberra could carry a pretty big bomb, lo bomb load, and, and all we, we could only carry six, seven of these Mark 117s because the bomb bay couldn't hold any, any more than the length of, of four of them, which was unfortunate, although the aircraft could carry a great deal more weight. That was the, the most beneficial thing the, that we gained from the Americans. Ron, where we've been talking with the infantry guys about being in the field, I mean, similarly, people would be wrong not to appreciate that a lot of your strafing runs were low level and you came into contact with the enemy all too often. Can you share some of those closer experiences? We did a lot of bombing at low level in close support of troops. We broke up several potentially successful actions by the NBA by virtue of our bombing, by throwing bombs. We were very accurate. We got our our uh, average uh, bombing error down to something less than 20 metres. Wow. Best in country. That was the best in country. Mm -hmm. No other American squadron could, could get near that. So we could drop bombs in close support over near, near friendlies without killing the friendlies, you know. We were not supposed to bomb below, to release the weapon from below uh, about 1,100 feet because the risk of being hit by our own bomb fragments increased quite uh, exponentially quickly. But uh, at times the cloud base, which prevented the other American aircraft from, from attacking because they were dive bombers and they couldn't set up a dive bomb attack from somewhere around lower than a thousand feet because the aircraft just didn't have time to get into the. We could slip in under the cloud base as level bombers. At times we went down to about 800 feet. We, we, we cheated, you know. I mean, if the guys on the ground needed the bombs, we weren't about to say, well, no, sorry, fellas, we, we might injure ourselves, so we're not, we're not going to do this, you know. We used to just get down low. And, and Ron, at that, at that height, you could actually make out the figures on the ground. Oh, yes, you could see what you were doing. And were you receiving calls from Aussies, or was it mostly always American stuff? Very, in my time, we did very little support for the Australians down in, uh, in the Dewey-Dad area and, and in mm. the Fuktui province, because I guess the, the priority for targeting was further up, further north, and, and more particularly down the Delta. We did a lot of bombing in four corps, or four military regions, subsequently became called. 
on the canals because uh, we were, we could line bomb along the canals and destroy long lines of bunkers more effectively than other aircraft could. I remember dropping bombs in uh, Fuktui on the Long Highs, which was a, a range of uh, basically granite boulders, I think they were, and uh, the Viet Cong, as it probably was at the time. It may have been NVA because they were all over the place too. They had sort of rabbit warranty type uh, stores in the, in the Long Highs, supposedly, and we would throw our 750s at the Long Highs, and I think they just bounced off and gave them a bit of an earache because I don't think it was all that effective to be dropping uh, high explosive on on granite mounds but uh, you know some of the other guys did a bit of bit of support but for the most part I guess we were rather sorry that we weren't able to support the Australians more but it just didn't happen. We were tasked ultimately up to about 11 missions a day which meant several lot. of us had to fly two missions. We were always tasked with a particular target but en route we could be diverted to a target of higher priority so if a forward air controller came across something untoward like troops in the open he would call the support centres and, and they would, if necessary, change our target. So we en route, we had a three hour endurance longer than any other aircraft could. So we could be diverted from a target down in the Delta in in four core to a target up in one, I call mm. as we call it, up in the first military region up near the North Vietnamese yeah. border. We could fly the length of the country and still drop our bombs up there. If then we ran a bit short of fuel, we'd duck into Da Nang and, and refuel and and, uh, and then head, head home. Yes, we, we had a lot of that diversion activity. Let's um, talk about Long Tan, and Sandy, you touched on this before. I mean, it's the most notable Australian action of the war. Not the most notable, it's the most talked about. Yeah. I reckon Coral Balmoral yeah, is the biggest battle. Long Tan was first, and so it got... Yeah, let's do Long Tan, right. then we'll go to Coral Balmoral. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, and let's talk about who was involved in that, because, um, you know, we do know people that were actually on the ground there. We know people who came in relief. What was your exposure there, Sandy? I go back to uh, May, June, 66. My troop had the task of setting up the water point and the roads in Nui Dap. This is when five RAR were all around the whole of uh, Nui Dap, but they were three kilometers from where we were working. When I went up there with half a troop, which is about 34 guys, we had, uh, uh, we had to build roads, water points, you know, had to find the water, all that sort of thing. But we also had to protect ourselves. And I would put that six weeks down to the most dangerous time that we ever had in Vietnam because the closest Australian forces were three kilometres away. We lived and worked at night time as a... Uh, an independent infantry platoon, really. We put our own clearing patrols out. We had our own standing patrols out. Now, it was during the time, at night time, that we were being observed. And on two occasions, the Viet Cong came in, wanting rattling wire, all that sort of stuff, wanting us to shoot, and we didn't shoot. But they actually turned the claymores around the other way, facing us. And uh, thank goodness we didn't let them off either. That area was right on the edge of one field squadron area, and you'd remember that, David. Yeah. Now, when the 17th of August came, that particular area, plus the, I think it's the reinforcement holding unit, were right behind us. They were. Yeah. Up on the and, Yeah, and then, and then there was um, the, the boys that were used to be there before that were the SAS, but then they moved to SAS Hill. 
all that area was mortared. And of course, that is on the way through our position to Task Force Headquarters. The original plan, right, was we went out when they were doing the reconnaissance back in June, was to come through that area to Task Force Headquarters. That's what they reconnoitred. It never happened, but the mortars happened on the 17th. Now, the next day, of course, we've got, um, or that same day and night, I think it was um, B Company 6RA were relieved by D Company 6RA, and D Company 6RA went out to uh, find the base plate positions and all those sort of things. And that's when they basically uh, disturbed a regimental attack. And it was, uh, that's when Long Tan developed. Uh, and those boys fought magnificently, no doubt about that. But they were saved by Air Force, artillery, and by the APCs that came in. They were able to uh, inflict enormous casualties, hundreds if not thousands, on the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese. It's interesting you talk about casualties because one of the American war aims was they didn't have aims, so they thought we'll just count dead. They were obsessed with just killing people and counting up the bodies. And at Long Tan, I know one of the guys in D Company, who we hope to speak to later, said that the number they counted up, he was one of the guys counting them. And his CO at the end said, that's enough, let's go. And they hadn't even finished counting them. And bodies were blowing up because of Absolutely. the artillery. And the body count recorded at Long Tan at first hand is conservatively undervalued. They reckon they got a lot more than they did. Really you know, interesting, for what it's Angus. I take a trip back to Vietnam every year and there's a there's a girl who runs a, a tourist for the Vietnamese. When we were back in at the Long Tan Cross, she said she said, you know this cross is visited by thousands on Long Tan Day. I said, No, I didn't. She said, thousands of of, of, not, of, of Vietnamese. I said, how come it's visited by thousands of Vietnamese? And she said there were more than a thousand killed that day. And when you look at uh, the official figures, it's like hundreds. Yeah, 450 or something. 200, yeah. 240 yeah, or something, yeah. something body, by body count, basically, yeah. and at least double that anyway, so. And, and David, what was your involvement? Little. I arrived the day before and I was up there near the engineers and uh, at the uh, reinforcement wing and uh, we'd, uh, we'd experienced the uh, artillery firing the previous night, uh, which to young blokes who'd never heard an artillery piece come off before, to put it politely, we were shitting ourselves mm -hmm. and uh, jumped into the pits that were there, but it was just kind of false alarm basically for us. Yeah. But the following night, the Sergeant came running round and said, we'd grown accustomed to this noise and he said, we're being mortared, get in the pits. And we raced into the pits. Peter Erickson, who ended up in Delta Company 6 Row, had been through training with, well, right through with me and we were sharing a tent together. He left his, uh, his mug on the pillow and when we came back to, uh, to the tents after the mortar raid, his uh, mug had a hole the size of a two-bob bit in it. He still got the mug. Fortunately, things uh, fell in our way and, of course, our artillery uh, was, um, you know, they saved the day, basically. You know, they fired something in the order of 3,000 rounds that, that night.
we had about three or four guys wounded that night in the, in the, in the reinforcement wing. A company, which I ended up in, were out on patrol uh, looking for that mortar base. They did discover telephone cable wires. They found bandages, wounded, you know, bandages. So they reckon our people had actually managed to get the mortar base. Well, A Company was uh, came back into into camp and uh, they went out virtually straight away. They'd uh, they'd had a feed made for them and uh, guys were stuffing. I think the cooks were making hamburgers that day and uh, Peter Burnett told me he was a machine gun and he said, I just stuffed a couple in my bloody pocket. <laughs> we went. We were back in the APCs and on the way out there, the Air Force. Uh, uh, were told that it was outside if, well, their SOPs in relationship to flying in certain conditions. So it was heavily, it was heavy rain and uh, they were required to stay grounded and it was only because the uh, the pilots involved on the Hueys virtually disobeyed orders and, uh, and took uh, our, a few of our blokes out with them and uh, we dropped ammunition from treetop height uh, on, on the Delta Company. And, uh, and thank God you did. And yeah, they saved the day. A lot of these rules were dictated by the politicians. I mean, they were all mindful of the Australian population's reaction to the war. There was far too much uh, limitation placed on, on the Australian forces in country to supposedly minimise losses so that it wouldn't look too bad for the, for the media here. The rules of engagement as well were pretty pathetic in country. It was like fighting a war at times with one hand behind your back. That's why the, the tendency these days to keep the media away from the battlefront is to be commended because you don't want any of that stuff to be getting out. You want to get stuck in, fight a war, no holes barred, and don't tell the people back home about it because all they'll do is make it harder for you. Which they did. So leaving Vietnam and all the conflict and war up north, Let's talk about our return home and what experience was like as the war went on. So, Sandy, how was it for you, your reception at home? I consider myself very lucky, Angus. Um, it was early in the war, so I was back home in October 66. My task when I was posted to the School of Military Engineering was I was actually talking about infantry engineer cooperation. So the stuff that I've spoken here about is something that I was new to all infantry. So I was out talking a lot to the infantry units that were about to go to Vietnam. I uh, was lucky in that I was able to uh, have some input into the way engineers were trained at the School of, School of Military Engineering. My posting was um, the Captain Instructor Operations. The only major conflict that I really felt was when one RAR were having their, their march through Sydney. That's when all the newspapers were coming out with things like people calling, calling them baby killers and stupid stuff, stupid stuff and student stuff. Uh, you know, it was like, I think the, the, the Premier of New South Wales uh, was down at the um, Sydney University and he had uh, students laying, laying on the road in front of them. <laughs> Haskins said, right over the bastards, you know, and of course they didn't, but 
I would say, I would say, here, here. They were being totally manipulated by the press, mm -hmm. in my opinion. And we had a situation whereby the CEO of 1RAR, who was Colonel Priest, and he was proudly leading his battalion home, which had served the time in uh, 173rd Airborne Brigade as the uh, 3rd Battalion of a, of a uh, unit there, a very successful unit, 173rd Airborne Brigade. And some girl can of paint, red paint, drifted all over him and splashed him all about it. And that and was outside Town Hall steps, wasn't That's it? right, Disgusting. that's right. And, and, you know, that affected Colonel Priest. He never thought there would be any way that any Australian could ever call him a leader of baby killers and uh, you know, this sort of thing. And it physically affected him enormously. And I've, I've never, ever, ever felt so sad as I have about that particular situation. David, tell us about your homecoming. Well, um, virtually as soon as I came home, I just basically had, had my some leave and then, then I was demoted. The strange thing really was that by this stage, which was 1969, there was a lot of anti-Vietnam moratorium uh, action had taken place. You know, like in Vietnam, we couldn't get our, our letters because the um, postmen had gone on strike. They wouldn't deliver letters to Vietnam to such an extent that we had these um, signs all up around the, uh, the place saying, punch a postie on RTA, return to Australia. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of, you could tell there was a lot of um, negative emotions in the community regarding Vietnam. To such an extent that when I came back, none of my family asked me about my experiences. I didn't get one question about what had happened in Vietnam. And that was the general sense that no one, wherever you went, oh, where have you? I've been to Vietnam. Oh, yeah. No one wanted to continue the conversation. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to know. There, there was such, there was such a, a, a build-up of this antipathy that it was such a, a bad war. The people who went there were bad that, you know, when your own family don't even take an interest in it, you think, oh, my gosh, you know. And I remember, like, there were three of us dentists and we... Basically, uh, lived together when we, we rented a, a unit together and um, we lived together. And for a whole good 18 months, virtually, we need to stay together to have friends, to be friends with each other. It was very strange. I don't know whether we had built up a, some sort of um, psychological thing which separated us from them. But no one, no one really wanted to be a friend. So we relied upon each other for friendship. I think that's universal. I said, uh, you know, like um, I came home from Vietnam, all my friends disappeared. Nobody said anything, but they just kind of didn't get invited. And I also, what you sort of mentioned, you didn't think that, that you were a problem, but I think we were the problem too because we we actually, we didn't think of those, the rest of the civilian population in the same light as we did our mates. Our mates were our family and our brothers and uh, we'd done things that these other people don't ever, ever even understand to this day. So, uh, you know, we had nothing to talk to them about, basically. And I think we sort of, there was this twofold thing. They didn't want to ask and we didn't want to tell, basically. And Ron, how about you? I'd agree with that. We knew that most of the, uh, the people back here wouldn't understand anyway, so there wasn't much point in talking about it. Now, you're all up in Vietnam at different stages doing different roles. Vietnam is this chemical war as well, how you're all 
affected in certain ways. I mean, you're out in the field, David, they're spraying this bloody Agent Orange stuff and all these other things everywhere. It's on your base that you're handling it all the time. Even, you know, back in your base, David and Sandy, certainly in the field, you guys are handling chemicals and you don't even know what's, what's, what you're handling. You don't know what's affecting you. How has the war physically affected your, you guys with regard to your health? We weren't handling it. Angus, um, we were the result of it. Sometimes we had to travel through areas which had been defoliated. We uh, could sometimes feel the spray. I was lucky once again in that I don't think that I or my children have been affected in any way. But my brother, who was um, in the Corps of Engineers as well, he lost uh, one kidney through uh, Agent Orange. And definitely I've had many guys in my, who have died, who've had cancer, who've had, they died too young. They have been affected, no doubt about that. I've been extremely lucky. Yeah, I I mean, yes, I've got a disabled son. Uh, I can't categorically establish that it was a cause of that from getting sprayed, even though, you know, it was on all the time. The base was being sprayed, uh, around, around the patrol areas was being sprayed everywhere. So, but you know, I'm still fit as a Mally bull, as they say. But, um, yeah, I know that some people are of the opinion that guys not only had got cancers and that, but the effect of their post-traumatic stress, their brains were damaged. I mean, can't. I could tell you a little story about one guy goes into the coming home bit that you were just talking about before, and I think it's worthy of talking about him and his experience. Gary McMahon's his name, and I don't think he has any objections from me talking about it. Gary McMahon was in nine section in, in my platoon, came home from Vietnam, the same as the rest of us. We came home on Sydney and we marched through Brisbane. We went to Niagara Barracks, we got paid out, given a travel warrant to go home and said, see you later, we've had enough of you, we don't need you anymore. Thanks for your service. Thanks for your service, right? So that, and that was the last of our service. We did have that problem that, yeah, nobody wanted to talk to us. And as I said earlier, you know, most of my friends disappeared and, and you just got into the habit you didn't tell anybody you'd been to Vietnam. But I was a national serviceman, as is noted in the previous interview. Gary was regular army and he was 19 when he went over on the first trip. He went back two years later on the second tour and um, he tells me he had a pretty good, pretty reasonable tour because he spent most of his time training guys who just got off the boat. He was attached to reinforcement, but he travelled all over the countryside doing bits and pieces of patrols with these reinforcement guys who were given little tasks to do a patrol or give some security to some place or other. Gary came home and arranged to meet his father just up the street from here at the Rosal RSL Club. He turned up, he told me we had to get off the plane and uh, the authorities took him through the back exits through the through the back door rather than out through the main entrance so nobody could see him. Um, and he went, he turned up at RSL in his uniform with his ribbons on, and uh, he was uh, told in no uncertain terms he wasn't welcome. And uh, Gary, as Gary is, took offence to this and dropped this bloke, who's an ex-soldier, right? And uh, they called the police, and 
was escorted outside and the copper said to him, um, what's the problem? And he told the police what had happened. He said, listen, son, we'd like to go back in there and finish them all off for you. We're not allowed to, but we'll stay here and wait till your old man comes. His old man had served in the 9th Div in New Guinea and turned up and said, what's happened, Gary? And it was a very hard day for his old man, you know, that his son was being treated that way. Gary ended up, you might call him a basket case. Anybody who served in the infantry or in field engineers has got some post-traumatic stress. There's nobody that doesn't. And Gary particularly bad. He'd, um, he'd split up from his wife. They couldn't live together. They're still good mates and they're still married. She lives in Brisbane and Gary lives at the RSL home in, in Narrabeen. Gary was on a mission of self-destruction. He just sat there in his apartment little unit there and did nothing all day except for look at look at the computer and on Facebook and look at stuff that was on Vietnam War. He wrote a great big documentary about it. He didn't eat right, didn't do any exercise, didn't look after himself medically. And I'd been down there re- recently trying to look after him. Turns out there was another Knox boy, Rod Kane, who I'm not sure if he was... remember him, no. He was in our year or maybe a year um, before uh, or after. But he was obviously around our hand because he was in Vietnam at the same time. He was in B, B Company and he was down at um, at the Narrabeen place, Narrabeen RSL home, and I'm the New South Wales representative for 6RAR. And I get the message that there's a guy passed away up there. Turns out he's been living two doors away from Gary and Gary doesn't know him and they don't even know what unit he's been serving in. The guy's virtually drunk himself to death. They had a, um, a service in the chapel at the uh, RSL home. Like uh, Gary's, the family had split up and the family, the wife was up in um, Port Macquarie. She came down with the kids who were adults. There were two or three guys there from who lived in the centre who were Vietnam veterans. One other guy from his company who lives in the area came and his, his commanding officer, that was all that was there. This bloke had just killed himself. Well, you know, Gary was doing the same thing and, uh, and I went down there uh, you know, often and one day I turned up there, he'd been complaining about sore feet. He'd sold his car, he goes, I can't drive anymore because my feet are so sore. And uh, I said, what have you done to the doc? Been to the doctors? Yeah, the doctor's treating him for everything but what he should be. And uh, one day I turned up there with uh, with Alex, my son, and I looked down at his feet and he's got two black toes. I said, soldier, pack your kit bag. We're going to, ha- we're going to hospital now, mm. right now. And I took him to hospital. I thought he'd save his leg, but two or three weeks later it just got worse again. And um, I'm going backwards and forwards to Marnival Hospital. I'll be there today. Gary lost his leg uh, about three weeks ago. This is all casualty of this war. This is it just keeps giving. Yeah. And it's not on the headlines, but it's what you all live through. But I've heard the RSL thing, which I agree is disgraceful. Well, my eldest son's disabled. I spent some time with the Army Servo Regiment after I came back and came across and became good friends with one of the majors there who, on his return from Vietnam, uh, had uh, twins and they were both disabled. He's that the next child was okay. At Fan Rang, we were, we were sprayed with uh, Agent Orange around the base to keep the place defoliated. And the, the squadron that did this was on the base. The 123s were there, and they also used to spray the base once a week with DDT. 
and this was to keep the mosquitoes down supposedly to stop malaria seen as the bigger the bigger risk and of course these guys used to spray at a dawn a break of dawn and they uh, that was a period of low activity for their normal operations which had to be in daylight so they'd take advantage of that and they would uh, delight in coming over the top of our hooches at something like 10 feet and they were just scraping over the tops of the hooches with their spray bars churning out this DDT it was it was so dense that it used to come through we had these warm out air conditioners to blow through the air conditioners and it would create a fog in, in the room. You used to, as soon as you heard the noise of the aircraft go overhead, the whole building would go and of course the din was, you'd grab for a blanket or something and put it over your mouth to try and, you know, reduce the smell of this stuff. So having had this on a regular basis, yeah. I believe that my, my prostate cancer, which I, uh, and a gr- there was a great incidence of prostate cancer amongst amongst all of us in, in two squadron in ex-Vietnam. Mm. One of my mates died from prostate cancer, a guy I used to do a lot of flying with. And uh, I believe that was the, that was a big contributor to uh, to cancers and that sort of thing. And I don't think they talk a lot about Agent Orange, but they don't talk about DDT, which is a known carcinogen. Mm. But in those days, it was just something people used to put in those little spray things to spray to kill mosquitoes. Yeah. But it was obviously very bloody dangerous. Yeah. Well, similarly, I mean, I just remember those uh, we used to have call them. They had the fogging machines. They used to put them on the back of the Land Rovers, and and you know once a week. The foggy machines would just come out and be spraying, going up and down the roads and the camps and the tents, and you know, and you'd be coughing, you'd be coughing quite a bit, you know, while that had been going on. And I remember that quite clearly. I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, personally, I have a, a, a pretty good health. My eldest daughter, my first daughter, born to our family, um, has Down syndrome, and apparently the incidence of Down syndrome in Vietnam veterans is much higher than the incidence in the general population. So, uh, you know, you don't, you don't know, but um, it's, uh, you know, when your first one has Down syndrome, you sort of wonder what's going on. I have a child who's intellectually disabled and you come into this world and you think you're just going to live a normal life and then something happens to you and you accept it. And then you start to notice people who are similarly affected to you. And what I noticed with you all, Sandy, with the exception of yourself, is that you all had kids that were disabled and you were all Vietnam veterans and you were all affected by these chemicals. And this is just a common thing I keep hearing. And look, thank you for bringing that out. Uh, I hadn't sought to directly ask that question, but you all very kindly volunteered it. But this is the point on Vietnam that your nation calls you, in many cases tells you you have to go and you're conscripted and off you go. You do the very best job that you can do. And in fact, in all the fields, in the tunnels, in the Air Force, you know, in the medical care, in our patrolling, we are the best up there and you guys are the best up there. And you do this magnificent job and then the politicians that send us there then turn on us, all of society turns on us. You come home, we don't want you wearing your uniform, we want you to sort of sneak back into society on the back door, there won't be a coming home parade anymore because that's just not gonna work. And then the side effects of the war chase you and it affects your children. And this has been the most defining event in your life because it has dominated your life. It's dominated your youth and it's affected the rest of your life. And I just um, can't help but be moved and notice this situation that you all have in common and how you've all so nobly served. You just get back on with your lives and you all are carrying your own crosses.
and um, it's been lovely to just talk. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about how Vietnam affected you? And perhaps, David, we might start with you. Look, I don't, I don't think otherwise Vietnam has affected me too much. I made up my mind. I remember the, um, so a delegation came to me of a few people from North Shore saying that they would take me to have, have three days at North Shore Hospital to detect anything that Vietnam might have affected me at all. And so, you know, would you like to do that? So you could probably get get some remuneration or whatever. I sort of, at the time, and I suppose ever since I've been, I have had times of anxiety and anxiousness. And at that time particularly, um, I was finding um, interpersonal relationships difficult. But I sort of made up a mind that I didn't want to feel like I've, I've suffered from Vietnam. I didn't want to take that mindset. So I sort of said, no, I don't want these tests. I will make my way. I mean, I don't know, but that was, that was my mindset. And so I just tried to sort of, um, I thought, leave it, leave it all behind me and, and get on with my life, basically. And otherwise, look, I'm very fortunate. I have, I have a very healthy life. Ron, how about you? Well, I have peripheral neuropathy now, which is increasingly making walking difficult, and they can't find a cause of that. It's got nothing to do with diabetic, uh, diabetes or anything of that nature. So, you know, that, that's one little problem. And uh, there's no doubt that, that uh, we that have served in the Defence Forces, due to the discipline, are probably more difficult to get along with than most other people in, in civilian life. Uh, and it puts a lot more stress on marriages and that sort of thing, just by virtue of the fact that this is the way we, we function. In the Air Force, uh, there was this, you know, running, a, a, operating an aeroplane efficiently requires extreme discipline. And uh, if, you do, if you're not well disciplined, you, you yeah. don't do the job. So that, and that runs through all sorts of other um, defence activity too. So I don't suppose one could say that, you know, we haven't been affected by it. I certainly know I have. I'm not the easiest fellow to get along with a lot of the times. So I, I put that down to my defence background. And Vietnam was just the extreme case of it, you know, where we were all obliged to be uh, doing something that probably wasn't the nicest thing to do uh, under conditions of high discipline. Vietnam's every day. <laughs> if, it, if only for a few seconds. I do a lot of things in my life. I try to do a lot of things in my life. And I, you know, I run on Friday night, I kayak. Um, I'm, I'm looking after veterans. Uh, one thing, uh, and I try to be as occupied as I can because I find that's, that's probably the best study cure of a uh, thing. The more you sit down and talk, sit around, you end up thinking about things you shouldn't be thinking about. You know, when you're young and you're working and you're in a business like I was, and uh, you, you know you're just preoccupied with that all the time, you don't get too much chance to opportunity to think about things. But I found later in life it, it's changed. You know, your comment about you know not being the easiest person to live with. Uh, go and talk to my wife, and I think that uh, any Vietnam veteran who's married still is lucky because he's got a special woman that's looking after him because uh, for I think it takes a special special woman to be a wife of a veteran. I'm in your shoes, basically. I'm not always the most easiest person to get on with, you know. I divorced, but I'm now back again living with my ex-wife. We haven't remarried, but I mean, it's, it's still not the easiest existence, I can assure you. But That's a win. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, mm. That's a big win. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and 
yeah, I, I'm very emotional. I, um, you know, when I, when I hear of blokes getting hurt and even, you know, when the casualties were occurring in Afghanistan and I've listened to the news, it would bring me to tears, even though I didn't know the guys. Sandy, we started these podcasts with you and you um, had a very special war in those tunnels. What's your closing thought on Vietnam for us today? David said that he thinks, and I think others agree, that there's always a little bit of PTSD around with most people, with most people who went to most wars, I think. All wars, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we didn't call it PTSD in the First World War, but what the hell was it? Anyway, I do think that uh, that PTSD within each one of us has been affected more by the fact that we were not welcomed home, that our own peers shunned us. I think that the press has a lot to answer for. There's no doubt about that. But um, I also think that that PTSD has gradually got a bit worse with that sort of treatment. And um, I do believe, though, that society has moved forward from that. I think the welcome home parade in 1987 was something that we really needed. Now, it was 20-odd years later, but uh, it happened. Most RSLs today are run by ex-Vietnam guys. There's no doubt that guys from Afghanistan are being welcomed with open arms if they go there. And I think this is all something that we have learned as a society, and we need to learn it too. I, for one, am very glad of the experiences that I had in Vietnam. Not all of them were good, but they were experiences nevertheless that have moulded me. I am very sad about situations that I have seen amongst the veteran community and particularly amongst my own troop of 68 soldiers who uh, there's some very, very sad stories of PTSD amongst them. I do think though as a society we're learning. I don't think that'll happen again. Gentlemen, it's been a great opportunity to talk with you all this morning. Thank you for coming and sharing your wonderful stories. I said it to you individually and I'll say it as a group. We are so proud of all of you for your service and we thank you. Thank you for coming today. That was Angus Horton's panel talk with Sandy McGregor, David Buckwalter, David Leaf and Ron Aitken. All were interviewed in Season 1 of Life on the Line by Angus and me. Look up their individual stories. There are 1st, 5th, ninth, and 12th veteran conversations. David Buckwalter also spoke with us in Season 2 about a historical subject he is very passionate about. That bonus episode is called The Battle of Wow with David Buckwalter. We have one more instalment in our panel series coming up. Tune in next week for my conversation with three veterans of the Air Force, Navy and SAS. We spoke about PTSD, transitioning from the military into civilian life, and the difficulties that entails. Let us know what you think of the episode by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, where you can find out more information about us and all our past episodes. Also follow us on social media, Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and LOTLPod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Mark Thacker at Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven of Mark IV Multimedia. Thank you for listening and lest we forget. Mm-hmm.